Mindfulness seems to be everywhere these days. There are more and more books about it on the shelves of bookstores. There's a growing number of mindfulness courses available. In essence, it's a way of achieving greater awareness of being in the present moment, aiming to help us be kinder, more compassionate and thoughtful, less judgmental. It's also promoted as a way of reducing stress, dealing with various mental health issues and reducing burnout. Mindfulness draws on Eastern spirituality, where it's long been used to nourish faith. I'm Mike Wooldridge, and for this edition of Things Unseen, I've come to Timstead's Meditation Barn at the back of his house in Oxford, where he also enjoys playing the guitar, as we'll hear later. Tim is now a mindfulness teacher and the author of two books on the subject, but until recently he was an Anglican priest in this city. And before that, he was all set for a career in science. His particular interest is the relationship between mindfulness and religious belief and practice. But before we start exploring that, Tim, uh, if you were teaching me about mindfulness, where would we begin? How do you introduce it to people? We start right at the beginning with thinking about and experiencing the idea of the mind's automatic function. So the mind just wanders off. Mostly when people first sit down and pay attention to their breathing, the first thing they notice is that the mind wanders. This is the one thing I discovered is rather wonderful in, in mindfulness. That's not bad. That's just something to notice. The mind has an automatic function, which takes us into the whole business of our habitual thought patterns. And if we can start noticing that, we can start interrupting it and being present in the moment, which can change everything. How much meditation do you expect people to end up doing to achieve a state of mindfulness? OK, here's the million-dollar question which everyone wants to ask. Can I get away with two minutes every week? Broadly, I try to suggest the two rules are, one, do something every day if you can. And secondly, however little you do is worth doing. So a lot of people will just start off with five to ten minutes a day and then if they see it having an effect in their lives, they will build from there. We try to encourage people who want to take it seriously to move to more like half an hour or a couple of half an hour spots in a day. But you can start anywhere. How much would you do? Well, because I'm aspiring to teach this stuff, I probably try to do a bit more than I would expect others to do. I try to keep a rule of three. So three times a day, however long it is. So a sense of keeping coming back to it. Usually that's half an hour first thing in the morning. Quite often it's half an hour just before lunch. And depending on what I'm doing, it may be half an hour early evening. And I find that just keeping coming back. It's the rhythm of the day. It links with perhaps the monastic traditions of keeping the hours. It doesn't always happen, and I don't worry too much if it doesn't. But as an aspiration to keep that rhythm, I find that very helpful. And how much do you find that this uh, beautiful wooden building we're in here at the end of your garden, this your barn as you call it, your meditation barn, how much does that help you? It really, really helps. It's a beautiful space the moment I walk in. And this is interesting, the effect of your environment. The moment I walk in, I feel I'm halfway there to the place of, of stillness. Mm -hmm. 
why have you ended up making the moves that you have in your life? First of all, from the world of science, doing an engineering science degree, to becoming an Anglican priest, and now on to mm. teaching mindfulness. Mm. I think my exploration of spirituality came before my engineering. So I was drawn into some of the more contemporary forms of Christian expression in my late teens, the sort of evangelical end which had certainties for me, which at the time were important, and pop music or rock music, which is where I was at the time. So that came before my sense of myself as a scientist. But uh, my training as a scientist was interesting. It was partly, again, looking for certainties, loving certainties. But um, there was a sense in which there came a point where they came not quite into conflict, but I had to keep them in two separate rooms. I loved the exploration of science. I was drawn to it. But there was something in spirituality that was pulling me as well. For a long time, they were two separate things. If we're jumping quite a lot of years, probably two or three decades, mindfulness was where the two came back together again, where I found, ah, here's a practice that looks very much like some of my contemplative prayer practice, which I'd been exploring in previous years, but which is rooted in and explored by and tested out in science. So um, two streams perhaps diverging, coming back together in mindfulness. But we have jumped over there, of course, most crucially, your being an Anglican priest. We have, yes. How many years? I was 25 years from the beginning of my training to the time I left last year, or 23 years as an ordained priest. So how do you see that then, that whole experience of being mm. a priest serving a parish here in the light of that longer trend mm. in your life towards mindfulness? Mm. One of the really helpful things about Anglicanism, it's very broad. You can be a Christian in many different ways. And I was all within the Anglican Church. So starting off evangelical, then exploring ritual and the Catholic tradition, then discovering probably at theological college, I began to engage with a more liberal thinking tradition. And you could be all of those things and any of those things all as an Anglican priest. So it, it gave a broad space for me to keep exploring my own personal life while serving the parish as best I could. I probably moved gradually to more and more liberal churches, ended up in a, a liberal-leaning church in Oxford with a lot of thinking people. And that was important for me because that's where my own spiritual journey was moving so it held me up to a point and then there was a point where I felt I had to move but is that point in some ways a lack of fulfillment of what you had hoped for from being a priest or a frustration I don't think lack of fulfillment I always enjoyed the job loved the job found it always challenging always fulfilling it was more the need for a wider space, I think. A space where traditional Anglicanism was saying, oh dear, there are kind of boundaries here that feel a bit awkward if you cross them. 
academics would have gone beyond those boundaries, but in ordinary parish life, you really need to stay fairly, fairly central, even in a liberal parish. And I wanted to keep exploring, keep going on my journey of exploration. And I think in the end, I felt I could no longer do that in this context. Mindfulness is very much rooted in Buddhism, isn't it? Where the whole idea of being in the present moment is a central tenet of, of Buddhism. But in fact, hasn't something very similar to mindfulness been present in the Christian tradition over a very long period? We think of silent prayer, contemplative mm. prayer. I mean, many people would say that was a form of mindfulness, mm. wouldn't they? Yeah, many would argue that. I'm not sure if you could say mindfulness is rooted in Buddhism, but certainly many of the ideas were drawn from Buddhism and replanted in the scientific tradition. So it's mindfulness very much has its roots in psychology and science now, but it had a historical link with Buddhism. And yes, indeed, the Christian tradition has a long, long tradition of contemplative prayer and the mystical tradition these are things that most closely relate to mindfulness with a couple of provisos. One is the mystical and contemplative tradition in the Christian tradition is fringe stuff, too often locked away either in monasteries or in impenetrable theological tomes. Mm. It's not central, it's not mainstream. Secondly, there's something of the Eastern tradition that is being brought through mindfulness, which... I think isn't there in the Western tradition. I, I normally mention three things. One is awareness of the body, the human body. In the Western Christian tradition is often suppressed. Secondly, the Western tradition is very strong on the intellectual side, often very weak on experiential side. And thirdly, in the West, even though Jesus said don't judge, we're very judging, we're quite dualistic in our faith. So I think something new is being brought to the Western spiritual traditions with mindfulness. So it's true it's sort of there, but I would want to say it's not complete. It needs something more. So I suppose then my question to you about that would be that if you believe, and I know that you'd say you've seen evidence that mindfulness can be a way of strengthening someone's faith and enabling them to see and develop their faith in new ways, then why stop being a priest? Did you consider that you can perhaps exercise valuable influence within the church to try to help people in that way rather than leaving it? Well, I think I did for many years. So I've been practising and exploring mindfulness for about eight years and seven of those I was a parish priest and putting on mindfulness groups and classes and inviting Christians to come and engage. So to a degree, I, I think I was and did. And because my church was largely quite open-minded, of course, not everyone responded. I was able to do it there. But I think the centre of gravity of where I wanted to be was shifting. I wanted to make this the centre rather than the fringe of my work. So I was able to do it on the fringes of my work as a parish priest. I wanted to make this the centre of what I was about and I think 
there are too many other demands on a parish priest to be able to give the time, energy and space to this. I suppose that was becoming frustrating. Or when I became aware this was the heart of my life now, I realised it couldn't be the heart of my life as a parish priest because there are so many other things I had to focus on. But was there something of a struggle in that for you personally? I can see how you can argue it intellectually, if, if you like, yes. as, you, as you just did. But after so many years, and yes. you've become very close to people as a priest, yes. was it very difficult for you to do in some ways? Well, in the end, no, because a, a number of things came together at the same point. So I was probably coming to the end of my time in that particular job. I was pushing the boundaries where my church didn't really want to go with me. So I think I felt if I wanted to develop a Christian ministry, it wasn't going to be here. And no bitterness in that, no upset with that. That often happens. It's just you become aware of it. I'd explored a new project with my bishop, actually, to explore perhaps a more progressive, more cutting-edge expression of Christian ministry in, in Oxford, but for various quite practical and some bureaucratic reasons it, that couldn't go forward. And then I realised I had something I could do that did not rely on the church and could possibly bring an income. And I suddenly felt, I can do this. And it felt a great liberation, really. So it happened quite nicely in that I hadn't got to the point where I'd fallen out with the church or fallen out with my church. We were still on good terms. I was still happy in the work. But it suddenly became apparent that I had a future in another place. And that only felt positive, really. There is one other element in this, isn't there? And you write about it yourself in your books, that you have been prone to depression at times in your life mm. and finding mindfulness helpful in dealing mm. with that. Absolutely. No, this is all about, dare I say, all about me, really. And, and then teaching it further <laughs> and to then teaching. teaching. So when I first came across mindfulness, I'd had periods of significant depression in the long distant past. Mostly it was managing stress. So that's what was transformed with me. It gave me a whole new set of tools for how to manage stress without sinking into low mood nearly as much as I used to. So that was already happening. So that had fueled my being able to continue to enjoy parish ministry for some years. So I wouldn't say there were many downright negative reasons for leaving. It was more the sense of I felt this was a narrower space than I needed to express what was emerging within me. And I needed to move towards a bigger space. And so I'm on good terms with the church. I offer mindfulness back to the church, but it's not the place for me anymore, or certainly parish ministry isn't. Have you found that there are some people who are suspicious of mindfulness, perhaps not least because of its connection with Buddhism, and they see that, for them at least, as a boundary rather than a bridge, something that they can mm. then use to deepen their own faith. Mm. Have you encountered those kind of objections, theological objections, yes, if you yes, like? Yes, very much so. For some, just any kind of link with Buddhism, if you have that sense of a non-pluralistic view of faith, so that rules it out straight away. For others, it's more subtle, and I think this is quite interesting. I think it can be quite a challenge if your faith is based on 
fixed dogmatic ideas. Because mindfulness invites you to open up and to wonder about the ideas and thoughts and concepts that are around rather than cling to fixed ideas. So the more your faith is fixed on fixed dogmas, fixed ideas, mindfulness will be a challenge. And so some people say, no, this is not for me. And perhaps the third thing, which I think is positive, I don't think you can practice mindfulness and have a fairly narrow or orthodox view of faith unchallenged. I think this is bringing something new. I still want to say you can have a heartfelt devotion to the narrative of Jesus. I still call myself a big fan of Jesus, but your understanding of the meaning of his life may have to shift a bit. So I started preaching about this before I left my last church, sharing how I would see the meaning of the life of Jesus. A lot of people loved that. A few people hated it and found it, this is not something I want. And so I, I think we have to be honest that actually this is likely to get you to rethink how you think about Jesus. And if you don't want to do that, then steer clear of mindfulness. But I would want to say actually it can bring more life, more depth and more richness to faith. But why is it specifically mindfulness that opens up for you a new understanding of Jesus? I think the early understandings of Jesus and theology that I took on board in those earliest days, which hung over for a long time, were quite a black and white, good and evil, sinner and saint kind of construct. Now, mindfulness really undermines that idea that there are two things in competition with one another, and you've just got to leap from the dark to the light. Mindfulness opens up just the presence of whatever is here, an awareness of what is here, without judging it as good or evil or right or wrong. Just the awareness itself will lead you to wiser decisions. So that basic construct of good, evil, light, dark, sinner, saint, I think is undermined by mindfulness practice. And then you can't really have a story of Jesus that is based on sinner, saint, good, evil. You've got to begin to say, well, what is the meaning of his life in that case? And you'll push towards something else. Have you found that you're able to change minds? I'm learning how to have those kind of conversations because if we're just seeking to change a mind, we normally hit blocks in one another. The way I think is more useful is to explore experience, is to bring forward what is your experience and then let's see what we make of that. One thing I have found exciting is when I've talked about Jesus and the way I currently understand him and the meaning of his life outside the church, to people who have perhaps left the church for all sorts of reasons, often people say to me, ah, now if they'd told me that about Jesus, I might have been more interested. And I find that very exciting. The church's version of Jesus has turned many people off. But actually, if you start talking in other ways about Jesus, a number of people are interested in re-engaging. Could you give me a practical example of that, one aspect of Jesus, okay. Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry yeah. that you have found might 
enable someone to see him in that way. Yes. Oh, let's get to the core. In fact, the meaning of the cross. <laughs> so a traditional meaning of the cross is to do with human sinfulness being overcome and the need for somebody to save me because I'm bad and I need help. Now, that narrative sort of works for some people, but many who've left the church just cannot relate to it. It makes no sense. It's very, very negative. It's very, very judging. And the whole thing doesn't make sense to them. I've re-understood the whole journey to the cross as here is a man, a human being, living an authentic life of the utmost integrity. And what was entailed in living that life was he could not stand by and watch an oppressive religious and political system oppress and exclude the most vulnerable in their community. And so hence you have the turning over the money changers in the temple and the letting out of the beasts of sacrifice, challenging that whole system which he saw as exclusive and oppressive. Now you could argue, and many have argued, that's what led to him being crucified. They had to get rid of someone who was challenging the structures and the power structures of the day. And I said, this is the Jesus. This is the rebel, the protester, the activist who was willing to suffer to that degree to stand up for the most vulnerable and the poorest in society. And many people in the world today, and particularly we may come onto this, my engagement with the climate protest and Extinction Rebellion, say, oh, right, well, in that case, I'm interested in this Jesus, really. I'm not interested in someone dying for my sins, as Patti Smith sort of wonderfully declared, my sins are my own, I'll deal with them. <laughs> but I'm interested in joining in with someone who's challenging injustice and willing to suffer for it. Indeed, I mean, that Extinction Rebellion example that you've just given that um, you've been involved in, in those protests mm. and campaigning, I suppose some might argue that although mindfulness is all supposed to be about non-judgmentalism, you are there taking a clear stand on something, something where you clearly believe there are rights and wrongs. Can there be any contradiction that arises in this, though? Yes, it's understanding judgmentalism or, or, or what that might be about. So judgmentalism doesn't mean coming to conclusions or a sense of what is the most helpful way forward for humanity to engage that the non-judgment that mindfulness advocates is not telling someone else they are a bad person or they are an evil person. We call it othering, so demonising other people. So Extinction Rebellion actually has been very good at trying not to demonise others, other people because they don't live a carbon-free lifestyle as much as they should, and neither politicians because they're getting it wrong. Very much, we're all in this together. Let's build a movement to help deepen our awareness of what is true and then let's see whether we can work it out together. Now we don't always achieve that because in the heat of protest <laughs> human things come to the surface but our aim is not to judge, not to demonise, not to blame or shame but to bring awareness and for me that fits very much with what mindfulness is about, shifting our perception, shifting our awareness, helping us to wake up to what's actually happening and that from there wiser action will come. 
in a way, does it shape any of your campaigning? Would that lead you, for example, not to want to demonise the oil companies? Yes, there's a difference between not demonising and perhaps saying we need to stop this for the sake of the earth. And so if we were on telly, you'd see I've held up a hand. That feels quite a strong gesture for me. Not a fist, but a flat hand. So I hold my ground and say, stop. I do not demonise, blame, ridicule, shame. I just say, enough. And that feels like the kind of balance somewhere between aggression and passivity is a still strength. And I I think that's what mindfulness and meditation should lead us towards. It's not about passivity. It's certainly not aggression. But is it about finding a still strength in the midst of which might help to bring awareness? Here it comes. This gathering darkness I send my roots down I send my roots down Let's turn to this season of Advent that's just coming up for Christians, of course, the period of waiting and preparation for the birth of Jesus Christ. What insights does mindfulness bring into this time in the Christian calendar? Mm. Yes, lovely. I, I think it's a very, very rich time perhaps two things one is um advent was all about active waiting for something to emerge that i could not make happen it's not something that i'm going to generate or engineer but i have to practice the active waiting the staying present the stay awake stay awake lest you miss it And mindfulness, that's what we do all the time. That's what every meditation is about. It's about, can I stay awake? Can I be present? Can I be here? I've used the phrase making space for God in the title of one of my books, because we can't make God come. We can't uh, engineer these spiritual states, but we can open up a space and stay awake and wait. And then we're more likely to be present when whatever is going to happen, happens. But amid all the busyness around Christmas, Mm. the commercialisation, can even mindfulness and meditation ensure that uh, people can experience the true spirit of Mm. of Advent and Christmas? Well, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it depends how you organise your life. But mindfulness isn't just about meditating. It's about looking at the whole of my life. To what extent does the way I live my life from day to day support this coming awake and waking up? So I may have to make choices of how I live my December. And if it's going to be a frenetic shop to party to shop to party, there's not going to be a lot of wakefulness there. If I can just adjust it just a bit to create some spaces to sit and be still and notice the light, the changing of the seasons. Another thing I wanted to throw in was the welcoming of the darkening of the days. I think Christianity hasn't been so good at welcoming darkness. We've sort of endured it and clung on to the hope of light coming. But actually in these days, the days are getting darker and this is something to welcome and to be present to, to allow a sense of inner incubation to be happening outside 
our knowledge and understanding. But we need to make space for it. We need to create time for it. Deep into this nurturing dark earth, I send my dreams down. I send my dreams down. Deep within this nourishing stillness, whatever must fall down, I let it fall down. Whatever must fall down, I let it fall down. We've talked about Jesus. But how do you now see God as a result of your experience of practicing mindfulness? Mm. Again, a long journey <laughs> that brings me to, in some ways, a place of unknowing. And as many would argue, this was always the classic Christian tradition. We were always invited in the end to admit that we don't and can't know. But I've moved probably from a very crass idea of a superhuman being being there somehow fixing things for me when I ask. Really, I think, to having let go altogether of any kind of being in a sense of a something that is other to other things. More trying to explore what some people call the non-dual tradition that doesn't set God over there and humans over here and creation over there, but more seeks to explore the sense of the unity of it all. So it's almost like those fleeting moments when I know that it is all one, that I am one with nature, that all that is is united in this mysterious, but indeed you could say scientific way, then I know what it is to say that God is here, God is present. Not that I've found God somewhere, but that I am in the midst of it all. I know a unity. These are very fleeting moments, but they occasionally come and perhaps that is the divine. How is it that you would say that you most use your, your early enthusiasm for science and scientific analysis and processing in deepening your understanding of mindfulness? Where does the science come in? I think it's the scientific method, which I've always adhered to, the setting up propositions, the testing them out and adapting them as you go. And that is being used to test out mindfulness all the way. So the Oxford Mindfulness Centre linked with the Department of Psychology is doing this all the time. So I really welcome that. I think that's really, really important. For fear we set up a new religion that is based on faith alone. <laughs> you just have to believe it. No, 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 we're going to test it out. But also I find it helpful. So one of the things I found helpful along the way in my, my sort of my science reading was evolutionary psychology. So an account of how human beings, how our psychology has come to be as it is. So that has informed my understanding of the way we are, the way humans react and respond to things, and therefore how mindfulness can help with that. So often I find that satisfying to have an account. And a lot of people who come to classes, not everyone's interested, but some 
want to have an account of, well, why are we like this? And I find that sort of scientific inquiry very helpful. Is there, though, any tension, perhaps, between what I might call the sacred and the secular interpretations of mindfulness in the way that its benefits, as you know, are now promoted so widely, for example, as a tool to help us cope with the pressures of modern life? Is there a risk, indeed, of mindfulness, as you see it, being distorted or diluted mm. because of this? I mostly have a positive view all the way, but I'd be more wanting to say, where do we go from here? So if you just want to use mindfulness to help you manage stress, what's wrong with that? You manage stress and you might make better decisions in your life as a result. If you want to help, use it to help you with your depression or anxiety, great. If that's as far as you want to go, fine. But there's more. And I want to hint at, let's look at the more. How could this have something to do with the whole of your life? or in fact move into what some would call the spiritual aspect of life. Now that word spiritual is a bit slipperily because I've talked to some people about the spiritual dimension and they say, well, why do you have to call it spiritual? That's just another aspect of being human, isn't it? And yes, but it's kind of deepening and widening. You can keep going, you can keep going. But if you just want it for this, then why not? That's not a distortion, it's just limited. Before we finish, Tim, are there any things you miss about no longer being an Anglican parish priest and about the fact that you didn't pursue a career in science? Hmm. The Anglican priest, yes, there is a lot of things related to bureaucracy, management and stress that I don't miss. I've said several times, perhaps before I got involved in Extinction Rebellion, I missed working alongside other people to achieve a common goal but I'm perhaps finding that now. I also, I have to say, I miss the Eucharist. I don't miss the particular words we used or the music we used or the choreography of it, but the Eucharist was always a, a profoundly meaningful act of worship. So there are one or two things I miss, but I'm beginning to discover something similar in other contexts, I think. And science? Science is still there. It's never left me. Whenever I teach mindfulness, I reassure people, I bring a scientific mind to this. If you want faith, I can offer you that as well. But my scientific training and my scientific interest and curiosity, that's with me as much as it ever was. Ruthless rhythm, drag and swirl, holy indifference, you teach me well. Now with the ebb, now with the flow, so must I come and go, come and go. I know that music's always been an important part of Christian worship for you. To date, you find mindfulness influencing your music. Yes, interestingly, I remember a moment when I was having a guitar lesson with a very thoughtful guitar teacher, and I was complaining about the boredom of having to practice scales. He asked me to pluck a note on my guitar, and we listened to it resonate. He said, it's a nice guitar. Do you love that sound? I said, yes, I do. He saw my eyes lit up. 
and he said, every time you play scales, pay attention, hear that note, that sound, that resonance and enjoy it. And it almost transformed the way I practiced guitar. And of course, that whole little exchange informs so much of how we're invited to practice meditation. Be present, pay attention, enjoy this moment, this sound, this breath. Thank you very much, Tim Stead, former Anglican priest and now mindfulness teacher. You've been listening to Things Unseen. I'm Mike Wooldridge, and this edition was produced by Paul Arnold for CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.